Minor Prophets, and we come to the prophet Habakkuk. Let me encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, the first chapter of Habakkuk, another little prophet, uh, right after an even smaller prophet, Nahum. Uh, Let me, while you're turning there, just say a couple of things about the prophet Habakkuk. Let's uh, kind of get the setting. Let's fix Habakkuk on the timeline, if you will, and start with Abram back in about the year 2000, where God makes promises to Abram, covenants with Abram and his descendants that he will be their God and they will be his people. That's high water mark number one. And then high water mark number two, if you will, is the Exodus, God's delivering his people from their bondage in Egypt and bringing them through the wilderness to the promised land and the conquest, the period of the judges, and then the monarchy. That's the next high water mark. So 2,000, 1,500, and then about 1,000 B.C. when the monarchy is established with Saul and then David and then Solomon. And in about 950 B.C., something like that, the kingdom is divided from one big, happy, dysfunctional family, they become two dysfunctional families, the northern ten tribes with their capital city in Samaria and the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and their capital city in Jerusalem. And then about 800 B.C. is when the writing prophets begin their work after Elijah and Elisha and those guys. And Amos in about 800 begins speaking to this Twofold, big, large, happy, dysfunctional family begins speaking to them and, and telling them that they have issues. You've got issues. And you're being encouraged to look at your issues. And, and if you don't look at your issues, you're going to suffer the consequences of not looking at your issues. And so for the next hundred years, approximately, the time of Amos down to the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the prophets offer these warnings directed at the northern kingdom primarily, but the southern kingdom as well, Judah. And by the time you get to Habakkuk, about 600 B.C., another 120-plus years have passed. You're 200 years removed from Amos. For two centuries, the warnings have been coming. And now you come to Habakkuk about 600 B.C. and just a few years before the Babylonian hordes march across the land and take the remaining two tribes of this big, happy, dysfunctional family into exile in Babylon. And what's striking, this is the second thing about Habakkuk, what's striking about Habakkuk's prophecy or his oracle is that his audience isn't so much Judah and Benjamin and Jerusalem, his audience is the Lord. Meaning, what you have in Habakkuk is this intensely personal interaction between Habakkuk the prophet and the God of Israel. And what you have is Habakkuk's deep wrestlings in the presence of God. Deep personal wrestlings with God. What's going on? That's kind of the masthead for this two or three week series of sermons in Habakkuk. What in the world is going on? So with that little background, let's read together just the first four verses of this prophecy. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, 
How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Let's pray together. Lord, um, help us to learn from Habakkuk. Help us to learn uh, from his example as he comes into your presence and wrestles, wrestles with mysteries and struggles with your purposes. Lord, help us to learn from him. Grant us your spirit. We've read your word. Now we need your spirit uh, to help us uh, understand it um, and and then believe it and then apply it and work it out in our lives. We need you to help us. So come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit to those ends. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's, here is Habakkuk, about 600 B.C., and he looks at the world around him, and basically what he sees first in this particular passage, what he sees is the, the deplorable condition of things in Israel. Things are a mess. Uh, the big, happy, dysfunctional family <laughs> is becoming increasingly dysfunctional. Okay? And the kinds of words that he uses in these verses, uh, describe just, just uh, how bad the situation is. And, you know, again, it's, it's just so hard for us in, in 2009 to, to, to retrace 20, how many, you know, 2,500-plus years, almost 2,600 years, go back in time, back to the time of Habakkuk, and sort of crawl into his skin and crawl into his culture and and sort of feel what he felt and and experience what he was experiencing. But what he was feeling was an extraordinary sense of grief, a deep, deep sense of grief and sadness and tragedy over what was going on among the people of God, the deplorable condition of things spiritually, the words that he uses, violence, injustice, wrongdoing, destruction, strife, conflict. He uses this phrase uh, in verse 5, the wicked surround the righteous or the wicked hem them in. It's a military term actually. Uh, And it's descriptive of what an army does when an army surrounds an enemy and, and as the army surrounds the enemy, the army is intent upon the extermination of the enemy. You know, it's this take-no-prisoners kind of thing. Ruthless and relentlessly ruthless. And these injustices and this violence and this strife and this conflict, this perversion of justice, this environment where, in effect, evil is called good and good is called evil. That's how topsy-turvy, upside-down, That's what a mess things were. It's all described and summarized with this military language. 
an army surrounding an enemy and bent upon its extermination and destruction. Now, this is family, folks. This isn't Israel surrounding Babylonians. This is Jews surrounding, oppressing, exploiting, committing these acts of injustice against family, against other Jews. And Habakkuk cries out in the midst of that circumstance and situation. How long? How long, O Lord? Why won't you act? Why won't you do something? The days of reform under Hezekiah are in the rearview mirror. The days of revival in the time of Josiah are in the rearview mirror. And Habakkuk is crying out, do something. Do something. Do something. How long do I have to cry out to you? And you don't hear, you don't see, you don't act. Okay, pause button. Anybody ever felt that way? Anybody ever felt that way? In your personal circumstances or as you look at the world around you, whatever it might be. So here's where Habakkuk... Here's where Habakkuk really becomes a model for us. Uh, Really provides us with some help. I mean, you can... You know, you can, you can extrapolate out from Habakkuk's circumstances or you can look at Habakkuk's circumstances and you can extract these things that, that you observe in Habakkuk's life and you really can take these things into your own world and incorporate these things into your own circumstances. I think that's what this book is here for in large measure. It's here for us to help us understand better how to relate to God in the midst of circumstances that God seems to be blind to, circumstances that he seems to be deaf to. Here's Habakkuk in the midst of his circumstances who helps us, I think, and helps us in four ways, at least. Others, but at least four ways. And basically what we're looking at here is Habakkuk's prayer life. How does Habakkuk pray? How does he interact with God? And let me, let me give you these four things. Just make notes of them and then we'll look at each of them. First, Habakkuk prays honestly. He prays with honesty. And then second, he prays with understanding. And then third, he prays with perseverance. And fourth, he prays with assurance. He prays with honesty. He prays with understanding. He prays with perseverance. And he prays, finally, with assurance. First, he prays with honesty. It's a kind of a no-holds-barred thing with with Habakkuk, as it is with with so many of the people that we read uh, about and whose prayers we read in the Scriptures. How long, O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord? You know, there's a, there's a certain impertinence about Habakkuk. A certain brazenness about Habakkuk. I was um, at the refuge this last Friday teaching and doing a, a Q&A with the folks who come to that study and and someone, someone said, ask the question that I suspect you've asked or, or, or sort of 
wrongly drew the conclusion that I suspect you've drawn sometimes. When you think about God and you think about his greatness and his power and his purposes and the fact that he, he accomplishes whatsoever pleases him in all the earth, that, as Job said, no purpose of his can be thwarted. And when you connect his purposefulness with his goodness and you understand somehow as you live beneath the tapestry, you know what it's like to look at the bottom of a tapestry, a whole bunch of disorganized threads that make no sense, that seem to have no rhyme or reason or pattern. As you live your life beneath the tapestry, with your head, you draw this conclusion from the scriptures that God, who is both good and powerful and has purposes, is weaving all of those threads together on top of the tapestry in a way that makes sense. That's true. Now, the wrong conclusion that people can come to is that because all of that is true, and this was the question that was asked or the comment that was made, it's wrong to ask why. You ever felt that? God is good. God is powerful. God's doing what God's going to do. No purpose of his can be thwarted. So I shut my mouth and I don't even address him. I don't even approach him. I never bother to ask, why are you doing this? What are you doing and why are you doing it? And even more personally, what are you doing and why are you doing it to me? To me. Now Habakkuk sees life differently. Habakkuk doesn't see the world in this deterministic, mechanistic sort of way. He doesn't see the world as populated, I've said this over and over, I'm going to keep saying it to you, probably because I need to be reminded of it. He does not see a universe populated by impersonal beings. He sees a universe populated by a personal being, the infinite, eternal God, who is really there, and here's the phrase, he is at home in his universe, he really knows, he really cares, and he really does have power to do something about what is wrong. And so Habakkuk, with a kind of impertinence and a kind of brazenness, comes before the Lord and says, How long? How long, O Lord? And comes before the Lord in an unashamed way. Now, how can he do that? Well, let me tell you, and I'm going to make the point and then try to show you the point. I'm going to suggest to you that the manner of Habakkuk's address is appropriate to the Old Testament configuration of things in the way that our manner of addressing the God of heaven and earth is appropriate to the New Testament order of things. Jesus encourages his disciples when they ask him, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. The first thing that Jesus says is, say this when you pray. Our Father. Our Father. The Old Testament corollary to our Father is O Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bibles. He doesn't address God as El Shaddai, God Almighty. He doesn't address God as El Olam, God of the ages, God of eternity. 
He doesn't address God with any of those other attributes rightly ascribed to God. He addresses God with this personal name, O Lord, God's covenant name. That name has become so familiar to us, it's kind of like Father on the New Testament side of the cross. It's lost its power and force and significance. But the word Lord, the word Yahweh, God's covenant name, presupposes relationship. There's relationship behind that name. What's packed into that name? What is packed into that word Lord? It's all of the stuff that God did centuries ago, long before Habakkuk was around. It's what God did when he called Moses and disclosed to Moses any number of things. And in disclosing those things to Moses, gave to Moses this name, Lord. This is the name that I want to be known by. This is the name that is connected to the original promises that I made to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. When I made the covenant with the patriarchs hundreds of years ago, when I promised that I would be God to them, that I would not forget them, that I would fulfill all of the promises made to them, when I entered into relationship with them, what I was to them, I will be and am to you. And so what does God say? I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard their groans. I see their suffering. And I am going to rouse myself, stir myself up, and I am going to act in their behalf. And he does. He delivers them from their bondage. He brings them to himself. See, the the drama of the Exodus is the drama of intense, focused, personal love, grace, and mercy played out on the stage of human history as God redeems this people for himself, brings them to that mountain, and marries them. That's what that is. He marries them. You've heard me say it, I think. He makes them his bride. He calls them his treasured possession. He tells them that he will make them. This is so stunning when you think of everything that unfolds through the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, the Levitical priesthood, all of these different orders within the priesthood, the curtains, the walls, and everything that separates people from a holy God, the thing that God has said that he will make is a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession, those who will be in his presence, delight in his presence, those whom he will delight in. That's what that stuff is all about. And that's all packed into that little word, Lord. It presupposes relationship. God in relationship to his people. You've got to get this straight, whether you're on the other side of the cross or this side of the cross. Law, okay, always comes after grace. Always. Go back to the creation. God creates the man and the woman. And then he gives them his word. The act of creation is a gracious thing. He doesn't have to do that. But he desires, he, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who know infinite pleasure and delight in one another's company, he, they, together, determine that they will create image bearers upon whom 
will cascade down the blessedness of their joy. Creation is a gracious thing. And after the expression of grace and mercy, then he gives them a word to protect them, to guide them, to direct them. The law of God given to the people of God at Mount Sinai is given when? After their deliverance. After their deliverance. On this side of the cross, God calls us to all kinds of things, things that are hard, things that are tough, things you don't want to do. I understand that. But understand this. All that God calls us to, he calls us to with the cross of Christ and this expression of his infinite love and mercy standing before us. What is this business calling this God Lord? It is simply acknowledging, as Habakkuk does, that we are in relationship to the God of heaven and earth by his grace. By his grace, because of his mercy, because of his compassion. And Habakkuk, resting in that, resting in the reality of that grace, feels It's remarkable. Feels absolutely free to be a child, a son in the presence of his father. No holds barred. Brazen. Impertinent. See, that's the freedom that you get as a child of God. So you learn from Habakkuk when you struggle, when you see things going against you, when you feel, this is an image that I've used numerous, numerous times. When you feel like you've been tied up like Harry Houdini, bound in chains, tossed into the deep end of the pool, and you don't know where the surface is. You can't find air. What do you do? You just sit back and say, Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No. As a child in trouble, you cry out to your father. You plead with your father again and again and again. That is the freedom that I have. That is the freedom that you have. Because God has established this covenant with you. As he had with Habakkuk. The beauty is that you live on this side of the cross where all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. And you have even greater assurances than Habakkuk did of this kindness and mercy of God toward you. Look at the Psalms. It's all over the place. Psalm 42, verse 4. David, feeling absolutely free. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Here's a stiff, stoic, dead John Calvin commenting about this. If it is to be objected that the prophet exceeds moderation, the obvious answer is this. That though he freely pours forth his feelings, there was nothing wrong in this before God. For why do we pray but that each of us may unburden his cares, his griefs, his anxieties by pouring them into the very heart of God. So in this, we only follow Jesus who himself unburdened himself repeatedly 
with groans and sighs. Hebrews chapter 5. As he poured out his heart to the Father. So prayer is first honest, but then second, Habakkuk prays with understanding. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, and this can be the challenging part. We pour out our hearts to God. We do it freely. But as we pour out our hearts to God, our prayer is shaped by the knowledge of God and his purposes. Prayer increasingly needs to be shaped by the person of God, the knowledge of what God is like and who he is and his purposes. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Here's what distressed Habakkuk so deeply. As he looked at the world around him, as he looked at the people of God, Habakkuk came to the tragic, sad, heartbreaking conclusion that there wasn't anything about Israel that differentiated Israel from the nations around. They looked like everybody else. They looked like everybody else. But you see, God had given his law to his people, having redeemed them and brought them to himself. He had given his law to his people. The word in the text is Torah, which includes not only commandments, but everything that surrounds the commandments, the redemptive history that surrounds the commandments, not just laws, but the whole story of God's purpose to redeem a people for himself. Habakkuk looked at the story and he looked at the law and he understood that God had a great and high and lofty purpose for his people. That his people would, in fact, look different from the nations that they would be formed and shaped by this law, that they would understand it to be the gift of God, expressive of his love, that his people receiving his word would understand they weren't wandering around in darkness anymore, but they had wisdom from the God of heaven and earth. And as they struggled and fought and sought to order their lives, according to that wisdom, the nations out there would see the difference. This is Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 8. Let me just read it quickly. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. See, there they are. They're right on the edge. They've received the law. They've been redeemed. They're giving this land with big cities, beautiful cities, vineyards they didn't plant, wheat fields where they didn't sow the wheat, places of protection and safety that God has provided for them. And as they go in, this is Moses speaking to them one last time. Do these things in the land. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, this is the nations, looking at Israel, looking at their life, looking at the distinctiveness, hearing the laws that emanate, the word that emanates, the story of redemption that emanates from the people of God. And the nations will say this, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon? See, Habakkuk's heart broke because as he looked around, 
As he looked around, the people of God were indistinguishable from the people around the people of God. And basically, when Habakkuk pours out his soul, being informed and shaped, having understanding of who God is and what God's purposes are, as he pours out his heart, basically what Habakkuk is saying is, Lord, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It isn't the way it's supposed to be. So he prays honestly. He prays with understanding. How can I get understanding? How can we get understanding? Same way Habakkuk did, folks. It's, it's not any different. You know, we, we looked a couple of weeks ago at what happened in Josiah's day. They found the Bible in the basement. How long had it been in the basement? Generations. What resulted from the Bible being buried in the basement? It's a nice alliteration there. What happened? The spiritual condition of the people deteriorated. They'd lost sight of who God is. They'd lost sight of the story that they'd been caught up into, gathered up into. They'd lost sight of their distinctive purpose, their unique purpose in the midst of the nations, which was to be a people set apart. Folks, don't let the word of God get buried in the basement. Don't let this precious thing that God has given to us get buried in the basement. Open it, read it, struggle through it, fight with it. Allow it to do its work, to mold and shape you. And I promise you, it'll start showing up in the way you pray. That's what Habakkuk did. So he prayed with real honesty. He prayed with real understanding. And he prayed with real, real perseverance. He kept at it. This is the hardest thing, the most convicting thing of all for me. I want what I want, when I want, what I want. And what I want is what I want right now. One of the great lessons out of Habakkuk is the lesson of perseverance. It seems very clear from the text, from that second verse, that he kept at it. He just kept praying. How long, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Dear friends, don't give up. Don't quit. I don't know. I'm not in your skin. You're not in mine. Okay? I don't know what's going on. But as we make our way through this book, as we look at Habakkuk, and, and enter into his particular circumstances and watch him struggle. I need to be and I want you to be encouraged by his perseverance. He kept at it. He kept praying. He kept, if you will, complaining. He kept complaining. Not in that, in that irreverent sense, you know. Not, not in that sense that so often characterizes the way I pray, I'm just being honest. That sense in which I become God and I dethrone God and I seat myself upon the throne of God, presuming to be omniscient and omnipotent and possessing all of the wisdom and power necessary to run this universe well. You ever been 
Have you ever been in traffic and gotten mad at somebody because of what they did? You know what that basically is? Basically, that kind of complaint is it's a small thing, inconsequential at one level, but what it is, in fact, is Mike Malone dethroning the God of the universe, telling him he's not operating his universe very well, he has inconvenienced me, and I would do a far better job if only I could have that throne. Not that kind of complaining which is an unholy impertinence. But the kind of complaining that comes before God and pleads with God openly and honestly based on real understanding of who God is and what his purposes are, but that is relentless in coming before God and offering, offering my cries and my pleas. The structure of the book in itself underscores this. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1 is the first complaint. Verses 5 through 11 is the second, is, the, is God's response to the first complaint. Verse 12, chapter 1 through 2, 1 is Habakkuk's second complaint. And then chapter 2, verse 2 through 20 is God's response. There's a pattern there. He goes, he prays, he gets an answer, he goes back. He's not satisfied. That is a holy impertinence. And then the book concludes with Habakkuk's prayer, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. This is a little bit like Abraham in Genesis 18. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God says to Abram, Sodom and Gomorrah are toast. It's a paraphrase. Abram says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city, I won't destroy it. Forgive me for asking again, what if there are 40? I won't destroy it. Forgive me for asking again, what if there are 30? I won't destroy it. What if there are 20? I won't destroy it. What if there are 10? I won't. Abram says, if I'm being impertinent here, forgive me. But he goes back again and again and again and again because he knows God and he appeals to the character of God. You see, praying with understanding, Abram says, will not the God of heaven and earth do right? You would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he goes back again and again and again. And Habakkuk does the same thing. So he prays honestly, he prays with understanding, he prays with perseverance, and then lastly he prays with real assurance with real assurance, I'm going to give you another passage to look at. It's Psalm 73, verses 21 and following. I'll just encourage you to look at it this week. But just note that at the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's closing words are words that are played out in the story of his life. O oh Lord, you are my strength. O oh Lord. You are my strength. In other words, I am not my own strength. I am not my own wisdom. I am not my own resources. I am not my own ability. I am not my own. You, O oh Lord, are my strength. You are my strength. And the reason I give you Psalm 73 to read is because Psalm 73 is the complaint of the psalmist that wherever he looks, it looks like evil prospers and righteousness suffers. And you get to the middle of the psalm and the psalmist 
the psalmist says, I was confused, I was chaotic, I was disordered until I went to the sanctuary. And there I was reminded that God is good and God is just and God is righteous and evil will be punished and righteousness will be vindicated. And then in verse 21, he says, I was like a senseless beast before you. But you always hold me with your right hand. That's what Habakkuk is saying. You are my strength. Even when I'm a deranged idiot, which is a lot of the time, you hold me with your strong right hand. You are my strength. So Habakkuk prays. Praise honestly. Praise with understanding. Praise with perseverance. And praise with this confidence, this assurance. That God is his strength. That God holds him in his, in his embrace. And as you come to communion this morning, what better evidence is there for you this morning? As you struggle with the things you struggle with, pray the way you pray. As you are a senseless idiot, don't take it personally, in the presence of God, what better evidence is there of God's determination to cling to you than the cross of Jesus, than this memorial of his everlasting love for you. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for Habakkuk, for this friend. Uh, please give us grace to take these things into our hearts, into our souls, relish them, learn from them, and God, by your grace, enable us to live them, we pray. And as we come to this table, Lord, would you feed the souls of your people? Would you refresh your people? For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing number 263, the first two verses as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.